All right. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you're listening from around the world. Welcome to Women in Environmental Science. I'm Serenia Nenzapunzla, and I have Dr. Bethany Larson with me today. Thank you so much for coming to my podcast, Dr. Bethany. Thanks. I didn't have to go very far. You came to me through, through Zoom virtually. It's great. Yeah. So just to get started, could you elaborate more on who you are, where you're from, and the work you're doing? Yeah, sure. So um, I am, I identify as a white cis female and I um, live in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I am um, an early career scholar, I would say. I just finished my PhD in 2020, um, right as the pandemic got started. <laughs> um, and I I am also a consultant. Um, I have multiple aspects and ways that I practice my scholarship. Um, so sometimes I would describe myself as an independent scholar, sometimes as a scholar administrator, other times um, a researcher. So it depends on the setting. Um, and as far as like where I'm from, originally I am from the great state of California. I lived there for, you know, the first, um, you know, 20 years of my life. And then I started doing um, outdoor education, um, which is usually like seasonal work, teaching environmental science at various camps, conference grounds, different ecosystems, which took me around the United States. Um, I ended up loving the northern part of the United States with four seasons. So um, eventually made my way to Maine, Wisconsin, and then to Michigan. Um, so the, as far as like the work that I'm doing, I work on philosophy of interdisciplinarity, um, specifically how interdisciplinarity or like crossing disciplines looks in environmental science. My background, as I mentioned, is in environmental science, and I got really intrigued about how we were doing that work. So I decided to study how we were doing it, not just to do it myself. So um, that's the kind of spin that I take on my work. Yeah. So could you tell me more about like, what does it mean for how someone is doing the work, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. No, that's a really good question. Um, you know, one of the first things that comes to mind is how people think about their work. Um, how do they define what they're doing? Um, how do they, like, which concepts do they pull on and which vocabulary do they use to describe it? Um, what kinds of um, frameworks or, or, or methods or even what kinds of data do they think count as data um, versus, you know, not data? Um, and then, of course, we can get into the nitty gritty technical aspects of, of how one does your work in terms of like your, the instrumentation you use, the methods, um, the downstream how you how you write up your work, how you communicate your work. So a lot of the questions that you're asking a lot of your podcast guests. Yeah, exactly. Um, just like uh, do it's like um, trying to think what what are they thinking behind the, right, the actual, right. like research papers one is pushing out, right? Yeah, right. There's so many possible ways to understand this world any and any particular subject in it. And especially when we're talking about complex socio-environmental problems like climate change, there are multiple ways to understand that complex of problems. Um, so 
the choices that we make and the perspectives we bring, you know, are both limiting and enabling, you know, they, they kind of put us blinders onto some things we're, we're choosing not to look at X, Y, and Z mm -hmm. so that we can focus on ABC. And, you know, those choices, um, are ethical choices, they're epistemological choices, they, and they have consequences, right, for who gets written into and out of scope. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, I'm, I, I'm taking AP macroeconomics at school right now, mm -hmm. and the first things we talked about was how, like, an economist looks at a model, right, and, but in that model, you can't look at every single variable, that's way too complicated, so you turn things off, and then you look at specific things and see how is that affecting the economy? And that's exactly what we're exactly. doing here. Exactly, right, yeah. Um, and, and one aspect that, uh, that I'm really interested in and that like sort of my subfield of what I might call environmental philosophy or maybe philosophy of environmental science is, um, yeah, like what are, what, what are those choices that we make? Some, sometimes like um, scientists or researchers are very conscious when they about when they're doing that which is great like <laughs> you need to be like very conscious of the the assumptions you're making and and what you're writing in writing out um other times it can actually be quite hard to track that um especially um when we sort of dig deeper into maybe some like definitions or topics that have sort of been well established in science we haven't revisited them in a hundred years um or um they're just not of interest to us because you know we want to develop a macroeconomic model we don't want to talk about necessarily um you know social stratification and the and the historical origins of that or something so um that's it's it's about tracking it identifying it and then also thinking about the consequences of making those what we would call boundary choices or problem framing choices mm -hmm. exactly and i think earlier you said something about um being interdisciplinary and and why is and being why is having the interdisciplinary mindset like crossing over disciplinary uh, uh, disciplines? Sorry, um, why do you think that's important to study climate change in particular? Well, sure. So, um, climate change is, I mean, it's hard to define what we mean by climate change because so many things are involved in it. We could talk about the biophysical aspects of climate change and say, you know, it's earth warming or earth climate change. Um, but we also could talk about um, the impacts on human communities and how human communities are adapting. And, and you might talk about community change um, mm -hmm. in response to climate. So when we're talking about something complex like climate change, um, there are so many different factors that are interacting um, in the earth system, right? It's a system and um, as a natural system that exists and that we also, you know, play around in and, and um, intervene in, it is, um, it's, it's whole and, and integrated in the way that it is. Um, it's not, already divvied up into parts that match certain disciplines. So there's an economic aspect to climate change. There's, you know, a geographic in, in aspect to it, historical, of course, um, and, and sociological, so on and so on. So in order to understand 
grasp even a little bit of what's going on in a part of the problem called climate change, we would need to take on the, the perspective of multiple disciplines or professions, I would even say architecture, the skilled mm -hmm. trades, et cetera, to understand um, the, the, the dynamics at play. Yeah, basically climate change affects everybody and you can't really sum it up with one discipline. You need meteorologists, um, geologists, economists, everybody working together. That's a right. A lot of ists. <laughs> and ologists, yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so um, what are like the, so the socioeconomic problems associated with climate change? Because I know in the news you, you hear that, or like in just articles reading about climate change, we hear that um, there's people who have lower socioeconomic status are the ones that are affected more by climate change. And, and like, yeah, could you describe some of that and maybe how we can overcome this issue? Mm. You've asked the wicked question. It's the thousand million dollar, it's the priceless question. Um, so some of the, the um, intersections we see with socioeconomic class and changing climate, when we think about it in terms of like the meteorological or, or um, atmospheric like climate, um, we see things like the area, an area the size of Wyoming is flooding this, the country of Pakistan, right? right? And Pakistanis contribute less than 1% to global um, climate change. And yet, you know, a, a huge, an enormous percentage of their population is suffering from the effects of climate change, um, which, you know, the models can, can show at this point with, a, with quite, with a lot of confidence, you know, that that event, you know, is made what 30, 40 times more likely because of human caused climate change. So it's not just like they happen to be at the right, wrong place at the wrong time, but that they are in the wrong place at the wrong time. And like we have all made these choices that enhance the odds that they are in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, and, and maybe it's a little bit hard for those of us in the United States to think about Pakistan. Um, if you want, you can think about Disney World and Florida and the, the challenges of rising sea levels that Florida is experiencing as just one of the impacts of climate change there. I was just at a conference of um, Florida coastal researchers and agency stakeholders talking about how do we even define what the problems are here? Um, one of them, right, is like, are we gonna continue building, building, building these high rises on the coast of Florida until we build them into the sea because the sea is going to catch them and we're building Atlantis, uh -huh. right? Um, and, and that's just, you know, one aspect. So, so the coast of Florida where, you know, the vast majority, 80% of the population of Florida or something lives on the coast, um, very, you know, economically prosperous, kind of the opposite of Pakistan, but could definitely become um, economically um, devastated by the impacts of climate change. So in, in, in a lot of ways, you know, Floridians have been able to insulate themselves from the impacts of climate change, um, like they have enough money to be able to rebuild after super hurricanes, mm -hmm. um, but eventually, 
the sea is inexorable, right? And, and it will catch you too. So um, in the meantime, right, of course, those who have fewer resources are feeling the impact sooner and worse, um, but we're all feeling the impacts. Yeah, exactly. You have, um, like, like you said, you're, we're building Atlantis. I've never thought of it like that. It's, that's really crazy. And, and um, yeah, so Florida is like the, the richer people. You have um, people who are able to keep rebuilding after these big, big hurricanes. But in Pakistan, you have people who are trying to get back to their homeland, right? But you, you can't because every time you rebuild, uh, that costs more money. And then the super hurricane, the hurricanes or whatever weather phenomena, Monsoon, monsoons, right? Monsoons um, or just big floods, flash floods may just wipe everything out again and you have to rebuild again and again. So it's an endless cycle, which is not mm -hmm. ideal whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Yeah, it's, it's really sad because every time that happens, it erodes the community's resilience capacity, right? Because it's destroying their social networks that they depend on the 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 quality of the soil you know that they rebuild yeah. on the the availability of materials as well as like the expense right so it's not that it's just like rebooting your computer where you uh -huh. redo it every time and you could theoretically do that forever and it's going to be like just a, a reset it's not a reset it it exactly. the set point deteriorates each time yeah exactly um, so now just like moving a little bit towards um, environmental philosophy, I think we, I think you like, kind of described what does environmental philosophy mean, right? It's like understanding the people behind all that scientific work um, and understanding how they think, what do they consider data, which I thought was interesting. So could you like elaborate more on that? Because sure. uh, like I said before we started recording, um, environmental philosophy is not something I've explored and I'm very interested to see um, all these different aspects of environmental science. That's why I do this podcast. Yeah, so fun. I mean, you must just have a blast doing this. <laughs> um, environmental philosophy is one of the environmental humanities. So you can think of environmental theology, environmental literature, um, you know, name your favorite humanity, environmental art. Um, and an environmental philosophy is one of the, the siblings in that family. Um, so when we think about sort of what are the environmental humanities, in my, in my understanding, a lot of what the humanities are about is understanding what it means to be human, like that meaning aspect and the experience aspect of being human, right? Art is about expressing an experience of um, a certain person. Um, you know, literature is also like expressing and exploring um, and philosophy um, can also be expressive, but it's often quite analytical. So it's analyzing mm -hmm. what it means to be human in the environmental spheres. So, um, obviously like what it means to be human is a huge question. Um, and um, usually, you know, we, we as humans have to kind of narrow things down a little bit to kind of wrap our heads around something. So we've developed lots of different specializations in the field of environmental philosophy. So we'll have environmental ethics, mm -hmm. um, environmental epistemology and, um, and, and so on. So um, I probably, don't fit in, it's interesting, um, 
it's this environmental philosophy is this intersection right between like environmental things and then the discipline of philosophy the discipline of philosophy since about the um the mid 19th century especially the turn of the 20th um and especially in the united states um kind of got physics envy <laughs> they they were worried that they weren't going to have like departments anymore at the university they weren't being taken seriously because they weren't rigorous enough um you know people just thought oh you just can say whatever you want as a philosopher and get tenure so they became quite analytical developed things like symbolic logic and um various um structures of ways of taking apart problems and building arguments um that's not the only form of philosophy, right? Like there's Confucian philosophy and continental philosophy and um, and maybe some of those distinctions are artificial, but um, in in the analytic tradition or more in the, um, and even in some, some other parts of the world too, um, the traditional parts of philosophy or what we would call like areas of specialization are um, ethics, epistemology, metaphysics, and, philosophy of science. It's very strange how like philosophy of science got the same kind of stature as these other three. The other three sort of could talk about any subject mm -hmm. in the world. Philosophy of science obviously talks about science. Yeah. I would say that the environmental philosophy that I do is environmental philosophy of science because mm -hmm. my background is as a scientist and I still practice as a social scientist quite often. Um, but um, you know, so 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 first off to say anyone who's interested in environmental philosophy, like first also think about the, the other environmental humanities that you might be interested in too. And maybe there's cool blends of those. Um, also, there's many different ways to do environmental philosophy. Um, I ended up because of my background and interest focusing on, you know, how environmental scientists are doing their work. Mm -hmm. um, there are other philosophers of science who are, for instance, doing work on how indigenous scientists do their work. Um, yeah, yeah, we have some great folks here in Michigan who are working on that. Um, and where, and, and then of course, like a lot of philosophers just work on issues um, oh, socio-political philosophy is another um, area um, that are working sort of just on like issues that don't necessarily, again, like pertain directly to science, but but work beyond that. So um, the tools that I use, I would say that like I'm open to looking at the values that are active in science. Those those again, like the choices we make about what's in, what's out, mm -hmm. um, the epistemology, the metaphysics that we're um, as far as um, what what some philosophers call kinding or what we might call like categorizing when we create categories mm -hmm. like Linnaeus, right? Like categorizing all of those animals and plants and life on earth. Mm -hmm. That's a philosophical activity that we can sort of analyze, break down and be like, what was going through Linnaeus's head? Um, and, and, and then, you know, but really a lot of what Linnaeus was doing was shaped by his personal socioeconomic background, the people he was around, the incentives he was reacting to. So again, right, like philosophy of science is this nice, actually sort of 
cross-disciplinary field within the field of philosophy because you get to look at all the specializations of philosophy and how they're active in science. Mm -hmm. So that's a brief overview of the field. I may have made it less clear, but maybe threw some interesting things at you. Absolutely. Um, and like, how is the um, environment, how, how do studies in environmental philosophy, how, how are those conducted? Because this is different from environmental science. And I know you've had experience yeah. in environmental science, right? Where you have like your intro methods, um, results discussion, you have that like standard process you follow when conducting any experiment. Mm -hmm. So yeah, how is that different? Yeah, you know what? I think that doing philosophy is a lot more it reminds me a lot of writing English papers in high school uh -huh. in that um, I start, I'm reacting to something in the world that I'm observing and then I have questions about it. Um, but they're not questions about like the, the physical mechanism like scientists would ask about. Mm -hmm. I'm interested about like the conceptual mechanisms right. that are at work there. Um, so uh, a, an environmental philosophy project for me starts with a question like, uh, what's the role of values in environmental science teams? And then I start um, thinking about, um, you know, looking into the literature on values, values in science, um, pulling upon my background as an environmental scientist, um, to make sure that I'm always ground checking the ideas I'm coming up with, seeing if they resonate. Um, there's a whole other um, subfield of philosophy called experimental philosophy, um, <laughs> which is different yeah. from kind of traditional philosophy in that these folks are asking philosophical questions of ordinary folks or of um, you know, scientists or non-philosophers and they're actually asking them like what what is your intuition about whether it's better to pull a lever to divert a train or not do anything um, because a lot of philosophy for a long time was done by old privileged white men who like were very smart and a lot of them were very compassionate but had a very like particular narrow lens of experience and that meant that they had what, what to them seemed intuitively clear is not necessarily intuitively clear to other people. Mm -hmm. And so experimental philosophy might go out and like ask scientists, what do you think is the role of values in science and how do you handle, you know, X ethical issue? Um, so there may be some kind of, it looks maybe a little bit like social science at some point, you might design a survey, um, you might do some interviews. Um, and um, one of the methods that I use is from social science. It's called discourse analysis. And what I'm doing is I'm looking at some kind of language um, piece. Maybe it's a transcript of an interview or a focus group, or maybe it's a paper or a document. And I'm pulling it apart and I'm looking for how people are building the concept of model when they're having this discussion in their team, for instance. So um, sometimes, uh, yeah, a lot of the, the studies um, that I do kind of look like social science in that they use social science methods, but to answer different kinds of questions in the end. Got you, yeah, just, just like you mentioned, it's, it's that conceptual aspect of it that I really, really love and love to hear about. Um, it's, 
it's definitely, um, uh, like you said, it's it's similar to social science, but also has its own, like it's separate from social science because you're not, you know, there is so much different about them. Um, but yeah, that's that's a really cool way to, um, like like you're always, you have that interdisciplinariness, like I keep saying, um, that's, mm-hmm. that's extremely important. Um, so I think one of the things you work with is the Toolbox Dialogue Initiative. Um, now, can you elaborate more on what this is and how it can be used? Sure. So uh, Toolbox Dialogue Initiative or TDI is a community of um, researchers and um, facilitators who use philosophy to help multidisciplinary teams do better work through enhancing their collaboration and their communication. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the dialogue part. So um, this, this project has been around for about 15 years or so, started by Michael O'Rourke and some graduate students at the University of Idaho and um, involved many others throughout the year years and um, has over time done over 450 different dialogue workshops with teams or groups around the world. And what a toolbox workshop looks like is um, there's a first like a little bit of an explanation about what we're going to do. And then uh, the participants fill out either an online or a paper um, what we call instrument. It kind of looks like a survey instrument because it has these agree disagree scales on it, like you might see on a survey. But instead of like most sur- a good survey has very clear questions so that they know how people are interpreting it. So when they get the results back, they're like, oh, we know what this means because everyone probably interpreted this the same way. Mm-hmm. The thing that's different about um, the toolbox instrument is that every prompting statement is intentionally vague or ambiguous or controversial so that people um, have to create an interpretation. They got to fill in the blanks in order to say, I agree or disagree. So an example is um, all scientific, all good scientific studies should be hypothesis driven. Mm-hmm. Agree, disagree, you can, you can say, I don't know. Um, and there's a series of statements about this. And these questions get at, you know, one's philosophy of science. Like, mm-hmm. gosh, was I trained that, like, I always have to have a hypothesis or, um, you know, p-hacking is always bad or, you know, lots of these things we built, we gather about, like, the norms, basically, of how to do good science. But we've often just internalized them. They're hard for us to explain to other people. Um, mm-hmm especially when we get like really specialized at the doctoral level and beyond, um, or we've been in our professions for decades. And, um, you know, most of the time we can just kind of keep that stuff in the background. Like, I know that you know that you know that I know, except when I come into working on like a cross-disciplinary team or a team of people I don't know, I don't know that you know that I, I don't know. So this instrument helps folks, um, remember or realize what they think about these things. And Mm -hmm. then um, the facilitator just opens up the dialogue and it might start with something like, hey, I put a a four on question three. What did you put? 
you know, someone says, oh, I put a one. Well, why'd you put a one? Oh, because I don't, I don't think that like good science does this, but like science can do this. And all of a sudden you're getting people talking about their really nuanced views about how to do science or how to run their organization. And those assumptions are crucial for your team to get on the same page about, right? Mm -hmm. If if I think that all good science has to include a hypothesis and then I'm working with a historian, I'm just going to think that like what he's doing is either not science or it's bad science. And I'm not going to be interested in respecting this person or working with them. So surfacing these assumptions helps people a, like be aware of them so they don't get booby trapped by them later <laughs> um, <laughs> and maybe coordinate them or start to come to some kind of shared understanding. So um, that's a toolbox dialogue workshop. They usually run about two hours. And like I said, um, the group's done over 450 of these at this point. Oh, wow. That's a lot of impact. Um, yeah, there's uh, what's interesting is like it also helps people start talking, talking about them, um, which kind of relates back to uh, climate change, right? The only way we can really fix the issues that we're facing with it is to start, like to keep talking about it more and start clearing up these confusions that might be there. Um, I remember when I was like trying to learn more about um, climate change and the science behind it, I was watching this MIT professor um, on like MIT Open Courseware and he was, he was making everyone raise their hand who thought um, climate change was human caused and who didn't think so. And I think just bringing that out was really, really cool because it it shows, you know, oh, my friend over here thinks that it's not um, man-made. Now, now what what do we do, right? It starts making you think, starts making you talk. What's their background? What's uh, their cultural beliefs? What's this? What's that? There's so much um, around it, right? Um, that we can that we can start talking about once things have been um, surfaced. Right. Right. Yes. Yeah, and it can it can get heated, right? Once you you ask you throw out something controversial like that, it can it can get heated. But you know, with with a group that's committed to moving forward together, a group that and a facilitator that helps folks like maintain some ground rules of respect and um, you know mutual accountability, then it can be a really productive conversation. Exactly, and help you helps you learn more a, a lot more about yourself. I remember at school we have to like do these. I strongly agree. I strongly disagree, or things like that. And that really makes you think. I was like, wow, I did not think this hard about the bathrooms before. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And and either you discover I actually no, really, I don't have an opinion, or oh, I do have an opinion about this. <laughs> um, <laughs> let's talk about this. Yeah, yeah, the, the American Philosophical Association actually gave the Toolbox Dialogue Initiative an award for outstanding impact um, as a philosophical outreach initiative. So um, wow. we're very proud of that. And, and now the Toolbox is actually a huge player at the National Science Foundation, and especially in those programs where NSF is trying to foster cross-disciplinary teams. Um, very helpful for folks to have a, you know, a toolbox um, dialogue um, early on or, or periodically throughout their work. Um, and, I, and I will just say, you know, you asked like, how can you use it? Um, if you head to just, you know, tdi.msu.edu, TDI mm -hmm. is, is now based at Michigan State University, where I'm also based. Um, they, 
um, research page has links to a lot of open access resources. Mm -hmm. And one of those is like an entire curriculum for environmental scientists about how to think through some of these philosophical issues in their discipline. And one of the coolest things about this curriculum is that it teaches you how to create your own toolbox prompts so that you could run your own dialogue. Oh, wonderful. Then you have like labs all participating in this together and the whole apartment just trying to move forward as one collective herd. Um, yeah, I will put that link in the podcast episode description for you. So oh. everyone can look at that um, on the sticky note. <laughs> um, so what are some of like the environmental philosophical questions, like the ethical questions you need to think about? Like there's, um, you, you, there's like things about GMOs that I was looking into. Um, and, and I'm sure you've, you've, you've talked much more about this than I have. So please, um, yeah, it's got ah. ethical things. What? Yeah. Yeah. So in the field of environmental ethics, goodness, I mean, so many of our environmental heroes like Edward Abbey, John Muir, um, and others, I'm just pulling from the American tradition there, um, you know, Greta Thunberg, are, are environmental philosophers, environmental ethicists, right? Like they are putting forward um, their vision of like what, how we should treat the environment and what we should be doing. Um, and, and that's ethics, right? Like looking at how one should act and be and think. Um, and so, you know, name your, name your topic, uh, your environmental topic, GMOs, flooding, uh, climate change, um, geoengineering, food. They've, they've all got these questions about like, ooh, I don't, what is the right thing to do here? Um, some of the most, I think important environmental ethics work that is being done currently is work that is helping to identify hidden harms um, in the environmental choices that we make. So, you know, really talking about um, impacts on, you know, Pakistanis from climate change um, and then thinking about, well, hmm, how, how does the responsibility for that harm get divvied out? That's a really hard question because right. like in a way we're all responsible for that. Um, it's a common pool resource problem. And, and so thinking about responsibility um, and, in, in, and, and being able to like just even track harms that haven't done. There's a lot of environmental harms, um, right, that haven't even been talked about before because the folks in power are the ones who write the history and so we don't hear about a lot of those things. So environmental ethicists, I think, who are having a huge impact um, in the world today are the ones who are um, helping us notice things that we haven't noticed before. Mm -hmm. um, and so again, like examples from indigenous environmental ethics, like helping us understand um, what indigenous peoples have been telling us all along, like it, the exact ways that colonialism has harmed indigenous peoples' relationships with the land, their abilities to like maintain their cultures and their languages. Um, and so being able to like explain that in a clear way and then help people think about options for what to do now that that's happened or like how to avoid continuing the harm in the future, um, 
I think are again are like some of the really important environmental ethics work that's being done. Yeah, for sure. Like you said, there's not just one one organization we can pinpoint. For example, like there are Superfund sites. Now these Superfund sites have PRPs, potentially responsible parties. And those are the people you can say, okay, you pay for this, you pay for this site, you, you do this and this. However, climate change is everybody. I throw a, I drive to school every day. That's, that um, it affects and um, exacerbates climate change. Um, and I think it's like important to talk about some, some solutions. Maybe we can, um, you know, what can we do in our daily lives that will um, prevent climate change that affecting people who are getting heat waves and dying just because um, we can't, you know, use more public transportation or something, something that we like, like our daily choices really have an impact on this, this stuff. And I think like thinking about um, those like tiny choices that we don't really think about this also relates back to the toolbox thing, right? You don't really think about some of the things, but once it's been once it's been pushed out and really spotlighted, then you then you really start, you know, going over that in your mind. Right. And that's when you have the opportunity to reconsider and maybe change. Yeah, exactly. Like I think once I started noticing how much how many things were individually wrapped in plastic, for example, the like the American cheese, like the swingle things, um, those are like individually wrapped packs of packs of cheese but what if I just bought the whole you know round of cheese thing instead of every single individually packed one right right yeah and and you know we start sometimes it's about like changing our own hearts and minds by by acting first <laughs> like maybe I don't I don't really see it you know but we start acting and then we're like oh yeah no I'm starting to see like this sort of accumulation of, of my impact, at least in my little sphere of influence. I have a friend who's um, committed to a zero waste lifestyle. Oh, awesome. And occasionally she will post a picture of her trash can. And, you know, it's like the last four months of trash and it's this much. And, and that picture has, is a, is capturing the impact that she's having in her sphere of influence um, that, and I know that being zero waste is a is a mindset that has impacted her not just in her trash can but in lots of you know areas of her life she buys really high quality things now right so like she has like a quality of life that's different than when she was living a more disposable um planned obsolescence kind of <laughs> consumer life so it it matters it makes a difference um definitely to you and the folks around you and then um you know ripples out from there yeah, for, for example, like if you're buying like more disposable things, first thing I thought of was fast food, right? You you have um, things super easy to just throw away right after you eat it. Maybe you're driving someplace and you just get fast food for why not, right? But if you pack that food beforehand, then you can see like, wow, I'm not wasting as much. You're, you're really getting zero waste and much better life quality. And, and again, these are things we don't really think about until it actually happens, so. Right, right. Yeah, a lot of these choices about being intentional are um, prompting us in a way to be mindful. It's a form of mindfulness of, of how do I interact with the external world um, and, and really thinking through like and making an intentional choice rather than like going on autopilot um, mm -hmm. is a way of engaging with this beautiful world rather than just sort of being a passive passenger on spaceship Earth.
Yeah, this actually reminds me of this play my teacher made us read for, for summer reading, um, Waiting for Godot. I don't know if you've heard of that. I, I have heard of it, but I have not read it. So you're ahead of me there. <laughs> so it's basically like these two guys are um, basically just living out their lives, just their simple routines, not really thinking about what they're doing. It's very passive. And I, once once I read that, it was, I realized, wow, that's the horrible way to live. You're not, you're not interacting with life at all. You're just going through the same thing and becoming dumber because of it. It's, it's really like important that we really think about our actions. And of course it's hard to do so. I can't say I always think about, you know, putting coffee, um, oh, for me yeah. coffee, but you know, maybe thinking about hmm, how much, how much carbon is released if I use this microwave as often as I do, maybe that's, we need to think, we need to keep thinking about things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, and it's true that we cannot always be mindful all of the time. Right. right. Uh, we need to use heuristics. We need to use autopilot. Um, so again, right, like every once in a while, we, we, we should reflect on and make an intentional choice about the things that we're intentionally not paying attention to um, and the things that we are uh, just to check in on those unintentional things and make sure they're not sneaking up on us. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Now, there's one part of environmental science that I think is interesting because it sparks debate between all kinds like, of, of people, right? Um, which are like environmental controversies. Um, for example, should I use, should I buy like um, GMOs at the store or should I go out of my way to pay extra and buy like organic or just, just organic food, right? Um, or like freshly made food without the use of genetically modified um, things. So. So what do you think about those? And are there other, I keep talking about GMOs, but are there other um, controversies that you like looking into? Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, it's one, one of the things that I, I really enjoy being in beautiful environments. So when I'm out and about on the streets, sometimes the things, one of the things I think about is um, the landscaping that we choose to use um, or not. Um, for instance, like people really, really wanting their lawns in Arizona um, and, and the, the ethics of that, right? Because like we could, we could use um, hydrology and we can use life cycle analysis and we can use agronomy and many things to, to sort of track the scientific or um, like the mechanistic impacts of that. And once we know um, some of the impact that millions of acres of lawns are, is having, then the question is, wow, what should I do about that? <laughs> um, and um, there are some, I think one of the things that environmental ethics can really help with is describing alternative ways of thinking about that question. What should we do? Um, for instance, like very basic um, distinction is, um, you know, greatest good for the greatest number of people. That's like one ethical principle that you could use, but it's not the only one. Right. Um, you can think about care ethics too, about um, the responsibility that you have to those that you're in closest relationship with um, or other relationships that you have that you may not have been paying attention to. So mm -hmm. um, I think ethical frameworks can be very helpful for then like sorting through the, the options for 
that what should we do kind of question. Yeah, lawns and landscaping is one. I think because I grew up in California too. I mean, landscaping is hard to keep alive there unless you use native plants. Right. Um, and, and so it's just always something that folks are thinking about. Um, and gosh, other environmental controversies. Um, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of biking and bike commuting. And um, I, I think maybe not directly in the environmental science sphere, but that intersection with urban planning, I'm like, why do we sometimes plan for bikes and other times we don't? Um, and um, when, when should we, and I mean, in some ways, like it, it does become a real ethical question because it creates um, or, or denies certain folks access there are certain people, right, like who can't drive or who don't, cannot get a driver's license. Um, and therefore, like biking needs to be an option for them. But when we've designed cities in a way that biking is actually not an option, um, again, like then we're having like these hidden impacts on the most vulnerable. So those are some of the things that I think about. Yeah, I think biking is something I did not think about. You know, I'm I'm quite used to just like driving through urban areas. Is it just like um, because people are not close to biking um, or people are not close to the areas that they need to go to, like the supermarket, it becomes harder to bike? Is that basically it? Yeah, I mean, yes, proximity to needed services is a huge piece of, you know, just how far does one have to transport one's body in order to get somewhere? Mm -hmm. um, and another, right, is just the infrastructure. Are there bike lanes? <laughs> is there like a protected sure. bike path even? Um, and, um, you know, so, so then you think about like, are there actually bike racks, you know, at these places for people to park their bikes? Are there bike racks on the buses? If someone's got to do a combination trip, they got to go a long way and then they have to bike a little bit more. Um, so some of those aspects are what makes biking feasible or not, um, in particular places, but right. Like if we built cities with grocery stores within, you know, walking or biking distance, um, then folks wouldn't need to drive to get to the grocery store. Right. So you, do you ever think about working with, um, urban planners to like, try thinking like, like doing, um, like really thinking about how we can plan our city, our city structure to make it better? Yeah, I do think about that. I don't do a lot of work like professionally um, with urban planners. Occasionally, like I'll come across a group that like has an urban planning aspect to it. Um, but one thing that I have enjoyed is participating in the like quote design charrettes in my home city um, and bringing that perspective um, to the planners there who are asking for community input about you know this redesign of this street i'm always like first of all where's the bike path, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah that's um and those are the people those they're the experts who they design our cities um or else they design they design themselves if we don't have an urban planner and then that's crazy oh no that would that would be bad <laughs> yeah um yeah, maybe maybe not just um, urban plan or urban designing, but like you, I, I understand like because you do environmental environmental philosophy or like you you also think about philosophy. You you think about so many different things other than you know 
urban planning. So have you ever worked with um, like other companies or like um, done consulting to, to um, places that you know can really improve on how they treat the environment and the people? Yeah, I haven't had that opportunity, um, but um, that's a that's a great idea for um, a career path for environmental philosophers to go into consulting, like sustainability consulting. Mm -hmm. But they're not going to consult with you and like do a waste analysis, for instance. They're going to ask some of these like ethical and um, priority kind of questions. Um, and, and that can be really powerful, right? Like you change the way that a company thinks about what they do, that'll have downstream impacts on everything versus just one product line. So, um, but I know that there, I, yeah, I'm not familiar with a lot of environmental philosophers who have worked with companies per se, um, or even with nonprofits. I do know of some who have worked with, um, agencies, um, like the EPA, um, like the NSF. I will say um, that one of my advisors, Paul B. Thompson, uh, who is a wonderful writer, has written several very accessible books about food ethics. Um, mm -hmm. I highly recommend them to folks. Um, he has done actually some consulting um, at least with for-profit like producer boards, like national egg producers, um, to help them think about animal ethics um, for the chickens. Um, mm -hmm. He's done a lot of work on GMOs and risk analysis of that. Um, gene drives, like editing the mosquitoes genome so that when you release it, it you know, eventually collapses the population. So um, yeah, Paul's, Paul, I think, is just a model of how to do what we would call engaged philosophy, where you're out yeah. there in the world um, working with folks who are impacting the environment really at large scales um, at that point. Yeah, well, if anyone who's listening to this episode is inspired by, by you and the work you're doing and wants to do engaged philosophy, which I really love that term, um, do it. Yes. <laughs> you. Yes, come to MSU. That's where we do the philosophy. Yeah. I will say I did live in Michigan for like the first 13 years of my life. Okay. So, so I visited MSU, I think just once, sadly, but yeah. we saw the solar eclipse there the time it happened. Um and at cool. and in like you could see it from Michigan. So that was really cool. <laughs> yeah, that's a great memory. Yeah. Oh, for sure. So throughout this podcast, I can see you're so inspired by the work you do, and it's inspiring to anyone who's listening. Um, so how and when did you get interested in doing this kind of work? Just interested in environmental science and then how did that branch off in the environmental philosophy? Yeah, um, well, I kind of, I grew up kind of at the feet of giant sequoia trees. I grew up in Tulare County in California, which is home to Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Parks, including General Sherman Tree. So I grew up hanging out there every summer um, and it's impossible to, be near those trees and not have the feel the feeling of awe um, that grabs you right and especially at a young age like stays with you and 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 shows you there's something fascinating here uh, there's something greater than me here um, and and I'm having fun you know hanging out there and I want to I want to 
be here and do this stuff. And, and I had wonderful grandparents and parents who would take me to nature centers and, you know, go tide pooling a lot. So I spent a lot of time mm. out in nature growing up and um, really turned on to environmental science from an AP environmental science teacher in high school um, who just was fabulous. Mr. Michael Young at Tulare Western High School. If you're seeing this, Michael, you changed my life. Um, and um, he ran his class kind of before they had to really standardize all of the AP environmental science curriculums. He wrote his, his whole curriculum on his own about California. And we went to and visited all 10 biogeomorphic provinces in California. And we created our own field notebooks about this. We really actively engaged, like we're out there. We were on a field trip every month. Um, so we took the you know principles we were learning in the textbook and then like went out in the field and saw how ecology was happening. And wow. um, so from that, I was like, I wanna study environmental science in college. Um, I went to a college that crazily enough, did not have that major or even a minor. <laughs> so I did, um, I just took a biology major with a chemistry minor and like did all my electives in like ecology stuff. Um, and, and at that point I had just absorbed so much knowledge about environmental science that I felt like a saturated sponge. And I was like, I can't take any more. I'm ready to be wrung out and like share this with people. So that's why I went into outdoor education. Mm -hmm. first in California I was like I know this state <laughs> I got this um and then like I said I moved around and um one one of the many cool things about outdoor education is that um you are teaching environmental science you're also teaching and facilitating human dynamics the groups of people with themselves and of course how those people interact with their environment especially if it's like um a camping or a backcountry based um mm -hmm program. And, and I think as I watched um, and, and got to be a part of how groups were interacting, I became more interested in the social side of environmental studies. And I took my first master's degree at UW-Madison in environment and resources and forestry. And I was what I was doing, I was studying um, natural resources management, or what we might call like human dimensions of natural resources. And um, so that I would move towards like environmental sociology. So I was already like moving away from physical sciences into social sciences. Uh -huh. And that master's program was explicitly interdisciplinary. They made us take physical, natural science classes and social science classes. And then they said, your job as a student is to write an integrated thesis. And I was like, I don't know what that means. Like I've yeah. never done this kind of research before. Please tell me what to do so that I can succeed. And everyone had a really hard time explaining what it meant to write an interdisciplinary thesis. And I was like, this is bizarre. Like, this is one of the top programs in the world. Shouldn't we be able to explain what we want students to do here? And what I, I was like, someone should study this and create some kind of how-to guide for how to do interdisciplinary socio-environmental research. And um, I ended up doing, in the meantime, some environmental evaluation, which is just like applied environmental, socio-environmental research. And um, again, I was like, yeah, someone should write about how to do this. I think I'm going to be that person. So I, I decided to take a PhD, you know, in studying how to do interdisciplinary research. So I made it kind of in big three shifts. Like I started as a physical scientist and then a social scientist and then a philosopher. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's amazing. And about the outdoor education, you you just um, uh, who, what kind of uh, age group did you educate? I worked a lot with fifth and sixth graders, um, but K through twelve. Um, cute, cute. Yeah, they are adorable. <laughs> Honestly, uh, was it just like field trips, and then they would go out and? Yeah, I worked in what we would call residential outdoor education. So the kids came to us at a camp um, somewhere or, you know, a moving experience, like a backcountry river trip or something. Um, And they'd be with us usually for several days. Um, And so in California, um, I believe it's still the case that all sixth graders are required to have one week of outdoor education. Isn't that amazing? Like, they're required yeah. to. And um, they hit a whole bunch of science standards when they're there and some other standards too. But um, they go and they have this like really holistic experience where at a lot of camps, what they do is like they'll come and stay in dorms. And then we sort of go out during the day to walk trails or do a ropes course or whatever. And then they go back and sleep in their dorms. So that's one model. I worked in Idaho for one summer where the kids were along with their families and we were doing a whitewater rafting trip. And so when we would hit land, like I would do nature interpretive games with the kids. So we were moving along. And then I did work in Maine where there was a camp, but on the edges of the camp were these campsites that were basically in a wilderness setting and the kids would come to us on their buses and they would bring their backpacking backpacks and then we would go camp with them. So for 24 hours a day, five days for that week, <laughs> they were living in the wilderness. And wow. so they not only were learning environmental science and group dynamics, they were learning how to cook over a fire, how to um, collect water for drinking and all of that. So uh, how to stay warm in a tent. Um, so there's like a whole other level of, of again, like engaging with your environment when right. you're in a camp, um, oh shoot, I'm forgetting the name of it, but uh, an, encamp- an encampment model. Mm-hmm. So um, yes, I encourage anyone uh, who you know finishes their high school degree or their college degree, and they're not really sure yet what they wanna do, if you are able to just kind of like work seasonally and move around and try a bunch of stuff, outdoor ed is a fabulous career to try on for a few years. Absolutely. I would love to just go back to sixth grade and move to California. <laughs> go to one week of that or wherever you can do that. That is a wonderful experience. And I think that'll definitely um, teach you a lot about, about like just surviving out in the wild and also how to, you know, protect it and really makes you connect with it. Yes. That's something really cool. And I love your AP environmental science teacher. I think just basing the whole curriculum on California because you live there it's just that that helps you really connect with the subject and right. I can see why you wanted to be an environmental scientist I went to in that class yeah yeah yep yeah so just um like how what kind of advice would you give to people uh, maybe younger unre- underrepresented people <clears throat> who are leaning towards you know environmental science and what do you think they need in order to pursue this field? Because um, there's so, so much you can do. Yeah, uh, I think one of the key things that any young person needs, but especially those who are underrepresented um, in, in some spheres of life, I'm underrepresented as a woman. And that's like one of the main 
you know, ways that I can draw from my experience. Again, like as a, a cis white female, like, you know, I'm a dominant in the dominant population for a lot of things, but, um, and I can't speak to that level of, of advice and experience there, but one of the things that's most important, I think, is to find role models. So watching this podcast and seeing people who look like you, who have backgrounds similar to yours, doing something that you're interested in, but you're not really sure how to get there, um, is a great way to start finding those role models and those mentors. Um, I think um, whatever anyone can do to um, build one's confidence in one's ability to like the can do kind of belief or what we call like self-efficacy um, is really important. So challenge yourself at like enough of a level where it's a challenge, but it's not so hard that you're going to fail. And then when you achieve that challenge, celebrate and be like, I did it. And then store that self-confidence away so that you can take on a next challenge because it's going to be really hard. Um, it's, it's going to be hard in so many different ways. <laughs> um, and so anything that you can do to just like build your self-efficacy is going to help you stick through the long haul. Um, and, and I think, you know, for especially one thing I've tried to emphasize through this interview is that there's a lot of different career paths, like a lot of different ways to do environmental science or the environmental humanities. Um, so don't feel like you have to pursue a PhD and become a professor, like in order to do environmental science. There's a lot of other ways to do it too. Um, be an awesome landscaper, like, you're designing landscaping, you can be the one who actually helps people use native plants and like around their landscaping, you know, and that's a skilled trade and that is not something that necessarily requires a PhD. In fact, the PhD probably doesn't help either. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, think creatively, explore. Um, if I have, I found it to be very helpful to be able to work short-term seasonal jobs um, so that I could try a lot of different things in a short period of time. Mm -hmm. um, I was trying on uh, different places that I wanted to live um, and be like, oh, I, I like this place or I don't like this place. Different kinds of organizations, like do I really connect with a religious organization or do it, does that not really matter to me? Um, how do I feel about working with a for-profit company versus a not-for-profit company? Um, and so there's tons of like seasonal tech work that you can do in, in the field of environmental work. Um, and, I, and I just encourage folks to explore, um, fill your confidence bucket and, and find those mentors and role models who can be that sort of guiding star and that light at the end of the tunnel as you keep working. Yeah, for sure. And having that ability to just learn, like comparing two things just um, helps you understand more about yourself and what you'd like to and um, I think that's I think that's a really cool um, piece of advice for anyone who wants to do this. They can they have options is the main gist. Right. Yeah. So one of the things that I also wanted to talk about was arts and how art and humanities do have a place in environmental science, right? So environmental science is when you when people usually think of it, we think of people like going out testing water, maybe soil. Uh, maybe advising you on how 
Um, you can better improve your energy usage, but we don't we not we don't necessarily think of art all the time. Um, so do you do you want to elaborate more on that? Yeah, I think. Um, yeah, there's there's several ways that art it, you you one one way that you can think about art or the humanities generally being having a place in environmental science is sort of in an instrumental way. Um, in that you do art or you study philosophy or you read some piece of literature so that it will help you do environmental science better. Um, so there are times where art is going to help you. There's a wonderful workshop from the Alliance for the Arts and Research Universities, A2RU, uh, called Flip Your Understanding, right? A lot of what it means to be in an environmental science is thinking creatively, uh, mm -hmm. thinking creatively to be like, what's a mechanism or thinking creatively to, to, to wonder what is, what could be the solution to this really hard problem. Mm -hmm. The arts can help you be creative. <laughs> they might help right. you, right? Like make some kind of cool association in your brain that helps you have the aha moment. Um, arts can um, sensitize you to observations that you may have missed otherwise, right? Like that's all, that's a lot of what art is doing is trying to draw your attention uh -huh. to something. And um, for instance, um, Jordan, I am forgetting his name. He does amazing art, large scale installation art where every piece of the art um, is representing, for instance, one piece of trash that's found in the Pacific Ocean. So this ends up being an enormous piece of art that like physically feels overwhelming and helps you draw attention to the enormity of like the trash in the ocean problem. Um, mm -hmm. And that might have been something that you weren't thinking about if you're say a, um, like a, a community level ecologist. Uh -huh. You're not thinking about like global ecology. Um, so art can help sensitize you to like larger systems or to other aspects of the system that you may not have noticed before. Um, and of course, like in the environmental humanities um, and environmental philosophy in particular, it can help you make better methodological choices. Exactly, um, like we've been so, talking about. Exactly. Um, yeah, um, and it can help you develop better theory to explain what you are seeing, um, particularly when it comes to um, like developing a theory that's coherent, that has like internal consistency logic that like uses that that's like a good theory that you know is like a good story that explains something and that's not making logical contradictions or using two words in different way or two words the same way or there's some basic rules of clear thinking right. that philosophy can help you with when you're developing a theory um, and then of course when you're like interpreting data it helps you check um, the logic that you're making for those inferences um, so um, the humanities and arts can play an instrumental role in helping you do better environmental science. Um, they can also just enrich your do your experience of environmental science um, when you're able to connect it with a larger um, understanding or, or experience of, again, like what it means to be 
a human doing environmental science. So, you know, a lot of times people think about scientists as like brains on sticks. Um, the humanities <laughs> can help you remember you have a heart too. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and that you can be like a heart filled scientist at the same time that you are a really brainy scientist. Um, so those are, those are some of the ways that um, the environmental humanities, yeah, can be can be helpful in, in doing environmental science. I have a colleague at the University of Waterloo who actually is a philosopher of science who studies how philosophers and scientists interact. And like, she's got like a whole typology of like different ways that they interact and a paper called Pathways of Influence between the two. So um, yeah, there's a lot to nerd out about there, but um, I, I don't think I've ever, you know, found my science like depleted by looking at the humanities side or the art side. Um, you know, art can also like give you access to communities that you wouldn't otherwise. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's, I think really important. Yeah, absolutely. It, I don't think it depletes any understanding of science, like the brain needs stuff at all. I think it definitely enriches it for sure. Um, do you have a preferred form of how you express your feelings with environmental science? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I'm, I like visuals. I'm, I'm a visual type person. Um, so uh, one, of, one of the things that actually I've really become quite enamored with is data visualization and, and other forms of like information presentation. Uh -huh. um, so honestly, like designing a beautiful slideshow that moves people to, to get the point and then like do something about it is one way that I'm expressing my care for the subject. Um, but I enjoy journaling, like that's just like my own private thing. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily say that I'm a practicing artist by any means. <laughs> there are those who are, but um, I've, you know, I've just started to garden. Like, so that's a whole other way of, again, like engaging with your environment and like expressing your love for it. Um, so yeah, it's, I don't know, that's, that's a good question. That's an ongoing journey. Absolutely. I think gardening is a beautiful form of environmental art. I know one of my, my neighbor has um, like these beautiful, beautiful gardens. And um, I have this big window that I just like peek at their, peek at their gardens because they're just so nice. When you see it grow throughout the year, um, you can really, you can really see um, how much they love the environment and it inspires you to start a garden. Um, so things yeah. like that, it's just, it helps us remember that um, art is always like, art is always there no matter what, what you're doing but also there's a community there who is going to be inspired by whatever kind of art you're doing um mm -hmm. there's so many different forms and um it's extremely cool to see people try out um these forms I know there's like knitting and quilting of um, environmental science scenes so things yeah. like that I think are very cool <laughs> um and just to like close us off today are there any other interesting experiences that you would like to share from your career um or when you were working on research yeah so 
I'll share this because it's an interesting story and I, and I hope it's inspiring for some folks. So after I did my outdoor education stuff, I knew that I wanted to go to graduate school, but I had never been exposed to research before. And I didn't like know about graduate school or what you do to get in. Um, so I knew that I needed to have some kind of research experience at the very least to sort of figure out if I wanted to do this thing. Um, but I was like, you know, a program educator in the middle of the woods in Maine. How was I going to get a research experience? Um, I wrote up a little cover letter and introduced myself um, and offered my volunteer services as a research intern to various field stations and environmental and I'm sorry, experimental forests across the United States. Um, so there was no program that I was applying to, no job. I was really just trying to convince someone to take me on, like, hey, I'm free labor. I have my winters off as an environmental or as an outdoor educator. Uh, so I have, you know, these four to six months where I can work for free. I just need some housing, you know, so that I can live in the wintertime in the middle of the woods. Um, and I, I was getting just stonewalled, no, nothing back until I did hear back from Hubbard Brook Experimental Forest, which is one of the longest experimental forests in New Hampshire. And uh, it's located in New Hampshire. They were the ones who discovered acid rain. Like these are big people. Oh and they were God. like, yeah, you can come out here. We've got housing that like a field station's open year round. Um, so just come on over. We gather gobs of data. We have so we would love for you to analyze our data, please. We'll pair you up with a, one of our researchers here. And so I convinced them to create basically a post-baccalaureate research internship for me. Um, but I had to be willing to work for free. Um, mm -hmm. And that experience was very instructive. It actually taught me that I didn't want to do that kind of research. I didn't want to do hydrology research. I wanted to work with people. So uh -huh. it was very helpful. Um, but of course, I learned tons of skills like about data analysis and you just you learn so much by, by doing any kind of research. Um, and one of the things that we got to do, I mean, this was like a blast. If you ever have a chance to, to go work at an experimental forest in the wintertime, uh -huh. it's crazy because uh, especially at Hubbard Brook, they continue to collect stream flow and um, rainfall data year round. Doesn't matter like the weather, how deeply it's buried in snow. Uh, they have burners that keep the, the stream gauges liquid so that they can collect stream flow. They're, they're very serious about it. We have to take snowmobiles around on the trails to get to all the rain gauges um, and, and the weirs. Um, and uh, one of the experiments that you only get to run in the wintertime that they were piloting, they were trying to figure out if they could do it, was with climate change, there's going to be a lot more ice storms than snowstorms in the Northeast. And they were wondering how more ice storms was going to impact the forests. So to rather than just run models and kind of like take our best guess with all the assumptions that models have to make, they said, let's run an experiment. We'll put some ice on some trees and we'll see what happens. So we got out there at three in the morning on a day when it was very, very cold. It was like negative 20 or something. Oh. And we put firefighting 
like wilderness firefighting pumps in the stream. We broke through the ice, put the pump in the stream, and then um, for several hours shot the water up into the trees and down onto them so that they collected a bunch of ice on them. Uh, which is very different than how an actual ice storm happens. That happens very slowly at around 25 degrees. We were worried about, you know, us being safe out there, be, you know, having to stay out there for hours and hours, you know, mm -hmm. if we were to do it on a slow cold. So we did it on a very cold day where the ice formed right away, but that was crazy. All the, the risk management that we had to do. Um, I almost shot my face off with this like hose that was, bursting water, you know, a fire hose. <laughs> so um, that was quite an experience. Um, they decided, you know, it's better actually to let's build. <laughs> I think they decided to build a um, kind of like a, an, a permanent structure with pipes that could kind of like rain down on the forest floor instead of having to send people out there who might shoot their faces off <laughs> too dangerous. <laughs> but it just reminded me of like the crazy things scientists will do to get data. Um, and and it was a it was a wild experience that um, I wouldn't have had if I hadn't had the gumption to you know send out these cover letters and then you know for Hubbard Brook to have the the graciousness to accept me for that winter. Absolutely. So what is an experimental forest? Oh my gosh, they're so cool. So <laughs> um, they are you know real forests out there in nature um, that people manipulate experimentally. So it's, it's a huge scale experiment. At Hubbard Brook, um, the, the experimental forests are run by the US Forest Service on their research arm. Experimental forests, um, at the one at Hubbard Brook is really cool. It's about 3000 hectares in the Pemigewasset wilderness and consists of one watershed um, that's broken up into nine smaller watersheds. These are just naturally occurring watersheds, but they're all distinct, of course. And um, this means that they can apply different treatments to each watershed and then don't apply any treatment to one of them as the control. And they right. can see what happens, um, less like an experiment, right? So one of them, you know, they clear cut it to see what happens to the hydrology after you clear cut. They applied calcium to one of them to see what happened. So there's that. And then there's lots of other smaller experiments happening. Like I ended up working on um, evapotranspiration within mm -hmm. the hydrology. There are other like biologists there who are studying the microbes in the soil or the birds. So yeah, just a lot of experiments are happening in an experimental forest. They're super oh, that's cool. so cool. Yeah. Yeah. You get to see like you actually get to physically touch all these different experiments and then um add your little input on it. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's so cool. Um yeah I think I think if anyone does have an opportunity to work there, go for it. Um I think that's probably you had you had it seems like you had an amazing experience there and I've learned lots about what you like, what you don't like, but also how the science was actually done. Right. Yeah. As much as I love this um, lovely, lovely conversation, um, we, we do need to close it off um, in respect to time and everything. But if anyone would like to reach out to you, um, where can they do so? Um, probably the easiest thing is, um, is for you to put my website into the show notes. So it's just my name, bethanylarson.com. And you can see like links to my Twitter and my email there and, and find out more about my work. Wonderful. We'll do so.
And um, well, we've been speaking to Dr. Bethany Larson, and I want to thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your thoughts about philosophy, um, some controversial questions, and also your work experience, because I think that's really cool how much uh, on-hands work we've uh, that, that you've done. Um, and I really appreciated uh, talking to you. I've learned a lot. Yeah, thank you so much for this opportunity. All right, and th thank you. And thanks for the listeners um, for listening.